Stand by America. It's time for real television as MMM Carpets brings you movies till the sun comes up. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. Welcome back to Movies Till Dawn. So today you're going to hear a conversation that I had with a true movie business legend. Um, His name's Mike Metavoy. And if you're a regular listener of this podcast, I'm pretty sure you know who he is. But if you're new to this game, uh, this this film history thing, uh, let me explain to you who he is. Or maybe I should explain who he's not. He's not a director. Uh, he's not a writer. He's not a movie star. So I call him a legend. How can that be? Well, what he is is an enabler. Mike Metavoy is probably the most successful and longest-running enabler in the movie business's history. Uh, he enabled art to be made uh, on, a, on a grand scale in one of the richest, you know, 30, 40 year periods that we've had in filmmaking, starting in the 1970s. Um, he began his life uh, in the movie business actually as an agent. And you'll hear him talk about how, as a packaging agent, he put together a number of hit movies. Um, and you'll hear about why he decided to transition to being an executive, which he did in 1975. Uh, at, the, at the age of 33, United Artists brought him in as senior vice president of production. And there he was part of the team and really the head of the team responsible for movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Rocky and Annie Hall. Um, and, you know, a few others I could, I could toss out that maybe you've heard of, like Apocalypse Now and Raging Bull and Black Stallion and Coming Home, etc. Um, and then, if this, as if that was not enough, uh, he f- co-founds Orion Pictures in 1978. Um, and again, a few titles just to throw out. You may have heard of Platoon, Amadeus, Robocop, The Terminator... Dances with Wolves, The Silence of the Lambs. You know, it, it doesn't stop. And it goes on in 1995, he co-founds Phoenix Pictures. And you get movies like The People vs. Larry Flint and, and The Thin Red Line and Zodiac and, you know, Shutter Island and Black Swan. And, you know, again, when you recite a resume like Mike Menavoy's, it verges on almost getting boring because it's so nonstop impressive. Um, on the other hand... We're talking about somebody who, given his accomplishments, is, as you will hear in our conversation, remarkably self-effacing. In fact, he wrote a book that I highly recommend you read called You're Only As Good As Your Next One, 100 Great Films, 100 Good Films, and 100 For Which I Should Be Shot. So, I said self-effacing. We actually begin this conversation by talking about one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and we kind of wend our way backwards and forwards from there. You're going to hear him talk about uh, two legends of the business, Arthur Krim and Eric Pleskow. Um, you may not know who they are, so I'll just I'll fill you in. They were the men who took over United Artists in 1951 when it was a kind of flailing company looking for a new identity. Um, and they were clearly Mike's mentors. They're the ones who brought him in in the mid-70s, uh, to begin that amazing winning streak. 
Um, and he speaks of them still with great respect and love. And, you know, you'll hear that in his conversation. You'll hear his respect for the business, respect for the artists. And I think it's part of what has made his career so long and still so pertinent. He is a genuine love for the movies. I'm not sure you can say that about many executives currently working. Um, anyway, so let's do this. Recorded via Zoom in the spring of 2021. Here's my conversation with Mike Metavoy. You know, I'm in the midst of writing a book about my parents. And the reason I'm writing the book is I'm trying to figure out you know, how did it all happen? How did my whole career happen? How did my life happen? You know, that's a, that's a, a deep subject. And um, in, in, in it, it all started off with the question, hey, how did you become Marlon Brando's executor? And what the hell was Jimmy Cagney doing on your house watching movies? Right. That's from a kid who used to go to the movies and see them all the time. And he'd see Jimmy Cagney up there. So that basically is the inspiration for the book. The um, Cuckoo's Nest is a different story. I was an agent at IFA. And Marvin Josephson, who was the head of the agency, said to me, you know, um, Kirk Douglas is looking for a new agent. You know, I, I thought it'd be a good idea, and he wants to meet with you. thought it'd be a good idea for you to go over and see, um, see Kirk. And I said, no, nah, I don't want to represent Kirk Douglas. I, I mean, I was, I said I was at um, CMA when he, and Freddie Fields were talking, usually late at night, somewhere between 6 and 8.30 at night. And I said, I never heard those conversations go well. I, I don't want to meet him. So he says, no, 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 don't, don't be silly. Go meet him. So I got in my car. I went over to see him. And it was a lovely conversation. And I thought, you know what, you, you, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do that to yourself. You should, you should not prejudge people because of what they're doing before. Just go over there. So I had this wonderful conversation, and uh, I went back to my office. And three days later, I got a call from Kirk, and Kirk says, "Hey, look, I've decided to sign sign with Stan Kamen, who's at the William Morris office, but you can represent." a book I own of a play that I did called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I thought, you know, thanks a lot. You know, and, and by the way, and I'm going to want to be in it. Well, one, I thought it was too old for the part. And two, I, I didn't think it was such a good idea, nor did I think that I was ever going to get that movie made. And I had just actually gotten three other movies made. Um, the Sting, Young Frankenstein, 
in Jaws, all as an agent. So that was, you know, my feeling about that uh, idea as a film, and certainly with Kirk starring in it. I then uh, was at UA for about, I would say, three to four months or maybe six months. I can't remember. And um, I hadn't found anything that I really wanted to do. There was, you know, some couple of silly movies, but other than that, nothing really. Uh, and I was screwing around with a project with Warren Beatty that never got made. And finally, I uh, got a call from Arthur Krim and Eric Pluska and asked me to come to New York. And I figured by then I had lost my job and I'd given up all my 42 clients. You know, that was it. So I get on the plane, I go to New York. I think I'm there with Marsha Nassiter, but I'm not sure. And I get into this office and Arthur Krim says to me, what the hell are you doing out there? I said, well, I, you know, where are the movies? He said, you know how many people work here? And I said, no idea. He said, there's about 329 people and they're going to lose their job unless you find movies. We're in the distribution business. I thought, wow. Okay. I said, uh, well, Arthur, I'm going to leave tomorrow and I'm going to find something to do, something for us to, to make. So, um, I said, I'm going to go to tomorrow. I'm going to go tomorrow. He said, why tomorrow? Why wait till tomorrow? Go tonight. So I got on the plane, came back to LA. The next morning I went into, uh, went into the office and on my desk was a script of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it was Saul Zant's idea to hire Mila Schwarman. It wasn't mine. So, I mean, I'd love to take credit for it, but I did, you know, five movies with Milos. Um, and, you know, I couldn't think of, as a matter of fact, somebody asked me the other day, he said, you know, what's the, the best director you've ever worked with? Well, Milos would have to be in that category, you know, certainly one of them. Uh, and probably the best one. If I think of some of the, great movies that he did for us, Amadeus being another one. Um, and I think I may have done his last movie too, People versus Larry Flint. Um, now, it was all happenstance, right? Timing was, was a lot of it. Of course, I did read the script. I did think it was terrific. Um, you know, it had, by the way, you know, the first director on that picture was Hal Ashby. I didn't know that. Yeah. What, he, not you, that he, did you fall off it? Well, he was, he, he basically Saul got rid of it. First of all, he was a wonderful person and a wonderful director. But he, he did a lot of weed. And maybe some others, who I mean, some other condiment that he was <laughs> into. And so you never knew exactly where you were going to be when, when he was either overweeded or over whatever. Um, you know, and I, I'm guessing that that may have been the, one of the problems that he had with Saul. 
And, you know, he, Saul went everywhere with that script. It was turned down by everyone. The only people who were interested was, were Fox. And what they wanted was a different ending. They didn't want Jack dying at the end. And um, so we were the last, last man standing. And so, how did you how did you get to to Jack Nicholson from Kirk Douglas? Was that a, a and I know Michael Douglas was involved as Michael. Michael, yeah, Michael did it. Michael took it over. Michael found you know found Saul Zanz. Um, Michael, Michael, you know, really pulled it off. And I, from what I hear, I don't know if this is true or not, but he had a, he had some problems with his old man when he moved the project away from him. Mm. Um, I think someone told me they didn't talk for a couple of months. So that essentially is in short, that story. Were you, were you surprised? I mean, it sounds like you greenlit this out of a little bit of, you know, crim putting a gun to your head. Were you surprised at the immense artistic and, and commercial success of that movie? Um, look, every hit you know, is a, a real hit is a surprise. And a, and, a, and a picture that's both commercially successful and critically successful is the, you know, the win-win on every, every direction. And that's usually what you want. Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? No, 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 no. Um, um. You're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You got to be out in a convertible while bird dogging chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? It's funny about that. Well, Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Well, you're not. You're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Jesus Christ, I can't even believe it. Those are very challenging observations you made, Randall. You know, one of the things I learned at CMA was how to how to package films. Now the the um you know in, in Young Frankenstein, I represented um, Gene Wilder. Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman. And the objective was to find a director. And when I first mentioned Mel to Gene, Gene said he'll never do it because he um, you know he wants to write what he's what he's done. And I said, well, give him a script anyway, you know, let's see what he has to say. And, and maybe you can work some things in. When I went back and looked at the movie, I was, it's so easy to figure out what's Mel's stuff and what's Gene's stuff. Kipper? Mm. Thank you, doctor. <clears throat> As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, therefore, to make the creature of a gigantic stature. Of course. That would simplify everything. In other words, his veins, his feet, his hands, his organs would all have to be increased in size. Exactly. He would have an enormous schwanstucker. 
That goes without saying. Oof. It's going to be very popular. So it was, you know, that, 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 uh, pulling that together was kind of interesting because we made a deal at Columbia to do the movie and Columbia decided, um, especially when Mel said, I'm going to do it in black and white, decided to put a, a budget on it of $2 million. And, um, couldn't be done for two. The picture cost 2.4 million. Um, and Mel stuck to his guns and Gene stuck to his guns. And, you know, um, they, they moved the, the picture to Fox. Uh, the producer of the film was a guy by the name of Michael Gruskoff. And I had given Gruskoff um, the project because I was trying to hire him as an agent because he had been a really good agent at CMA with me. But he didn't want to be an agent, so I handed him the script. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's essentially, if the question I think was, hey, did you think about, at that point, were you thinking about transitioning? Well, the answer is, you know, you can think all you want, but finally, somebody has to offer you a job. And then you have an, a choice. Um, at that point, I just, I wasn't making a lot of money. And I thought, you know, I better, I think I'd be more, much more interested in, in uh, working at a studio. I didn't think I was going to be running, you know, the West Coast of uh, United Artists. And not only that, but, you know, that transitioned me to, you know, becoming head of worldwide productions. And, I, and let's face it, you know, a lot of it is luck. I mean, I had nothing to do with Annie Hall. Woody, you know, Woody had done a lot of movies for UA. David Pickard, I think, initially brought him in. So that was the second one. Uh, on, on Rocky, you know, Rocky um, was brought in by a couple of producers that we had made a deal with. It was an exclusive deal. So they couldn't work anywhere else. And at the time, we were shooting New York, New York which all of us thought was going to be a big hit. Turned out it wasn't. But it was crossed with another movie that we really thought was going to lose money, but be okay, which was Rocky. As it turned out, Rocky wound up, you know, being the picture that, that uh, bailed it out. The, the producers you were mentioning, I think you mean uh, Chardoff and Robert Chardoff and Erwin Winkler. Yeah, that's uh, correct. And there, there's, there's talk, I don't know whether it's legend or, or, or the truth, that I think they had to mortgage their house or something to, to do Rocky and you guys picked it up. Is that, is that uh, are we in the that's, land of make-believe or? That, that's, I would put it in the bullshit category. <laughs> they didn't uh, mortgage their house to do that movie. They were, they were under contract to, to um, United Artists and they had a, a uh, you know, a non-exclusive, I mean, an exclusive deal. Now, the guy that says that he had to mortgage his house was Francis about Apocalypse Now. But there's so many myths in that movie. I mean, you can make them up as you go. Put on Cywar up, make it loud. And the Romeo Fox Trot, shall we dance? 
you know, and then, I mean, if you think about the decade, the four years I was at UA, there are a lot of great movies. I mean, Apocalypse Now, I had represented um, John Milius, who wrote the original draft. George was going to direct it and couldn't get the money to direct it. Francis picked it up. They were both living in San Francisco. Francis picked it up and he decided he was going to do it. And I knew Francis because I had actually been, Freddie Fields was handling him, and, but I was the second agent behind him. So I was making his deal at, on Godfather. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's why we went after it. Um, and of course, you know, you think about the, the films that were made in that, that period at UA it was pretty spectacular. I've been a soldier since I was 19, and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins, they gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate with extreme prejudice. You know, I mean, I, look, I don't know if he mortgaged his house or didn't mortgage his house. Uh, the fact is that, you know, that picture was a mess in, in a lot of ways um you may like the yeah you may yeah. like the five-hour version or the you know i mean I, I remember the first time i saw it it was five hours you know um i mean i i love the movie i think it's a great film but but having said that um there are a lot of myths about that movie too well, so then it's interesting to me. How how is much as the head of the studio did you have to do with carving that movie out of the five hours? How how involved were you with Coppola and that edit? Um, Francis, look, Francis edited the movie. Um, you know, that story is. I think I tell the story in my first book. You know, he you know he's he shows us the five hours. He's late showing up and was we showed it at his house um and the guys had just flown in from new york so for them it was you know it it was supposed to be for 10 o'clock it you know i i don't think we started till three or four o'clock in the afternoon and then five hours later we we're still watching the movie um and and he was he, he was pretty, you know, pretty angry. And I don't, I have no idea what he was angry at. Um, one, one of the things that angered him was that, you know, here was a movie about the Vietnam War uh, where um, Dino de Laurentiis had made a movie about King Kong that opened pretty much at around the same time. And he couldn't understand how come they weren't attacking that movie. He said, you know, why aren't they attacking a movie about an ape instead of a movie about the Vietnam War? There's an old joke 
um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. The, the other important joke for me is one that's uh, usually attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think it appears originally in Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious. And it goes like this, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I would never want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member. That's the key joke of my adult life in terms of my relationships with women. In, in Ralph Rosenblum's book about editing, he talks about mm -hmm. the initial version of Annie Hall having much less to do with the character Annie Hall and having a, a very complicated set of surreal comedy routines around it that eventually mm -hmm. all were taken out. Did, did you ever see that cut? Were you involved in watching any of that? No, you know what? Um, Woody, Woody sh shoots differently than most, you know? I mean, he's, a lot of the shots are in the masters with him. This is, you know, this is what I know. And then um, he goes back to reshoots and he gets, you know, the, the close-ups and the, a lot of the close-ups are, are done after he shot the movie. So he can, he can look at it. It's actually an interesting way of doing it. Um, you know, if, if you're into editing, it's a, it's a really smart way to figure it out. Um, you know, essentially movies shot like a crossword puzzle, you know, it's just a lot of pieces. Mm. And the decisions on how to cut a movie and how to edit it usually take place, you know, after you see a whole string of shots and you've cut out a lot of things. And sometimes, you know, not having a close up is a real problem. So. Yeah, he, he um, uh, it, it, it's interesting to me too that as the head of the the company, are you watching dailies that are of things that are being shot all the time? Yes. Because that's a, that was a yeah, lot then. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do watch dailies, although we didn't see Woody's dailies. You know, basically that, let him shoot the movie. Yeah. Well, he had a he had a very interesting relationship. His relationship with, with was with Arthur. At this point, Arthur Krim, that mm -hmm. is, and. Um, he would give Arthur the script. Arthur would read it. You know, the original title of that movie was Anadonia. You can look that up. Which is a disease. I don't know that it's a disease. Um, or a, a psychological condition of, I think it's yeah. inability to enjoy anything, right? Yes, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. And um, I think he got talked out of that one. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm in the midst of doing my thesis. On what? A political commitment in 20th century literature. You, you like New York Jewish left-wing liberal intellectual Central Park West Brandeis University with the socialist summer camps and the, the father with the Ben Sean drawings, right? And the really, you know, strike-oriented kind of... Uh, stop me before I make a complete imbecile of myself. No, that was wonderful. I love being reduced to a cultural stereotype. There were a couple of attempts by the people who owned UA to get rid of Arthur. And usually it was because they thought he was too old. 
that the you know that the business belonged to younger people. Who who did own UA? I forgive me. I don't I don't I don't know that. Transamerica. Transamerica. Oh, okay. Yep. You know, and there was an insurance company. I mean, you know what? I mean, they knew nothing about movies, and they didn't they didn't claim to know a lot about movies, but they they were. You know, they didn't get a chance to say yes or no to movies. They didn't, you know, they weren't party to all of that. And, um, you know, they had a set of rules. Supposedly, one of the rules was, you know, that I was only entitled to a, an American car while I was, while I was driving a Mercedes. Um, and eventually, I mean, that's what it was. It was them trying to get rid of Arthur, when they tried to get rid of Arthur, Eric decided he wasn't going to stay. At any rate, the, the whole idea was to, you know, as the Transamerica got into this battle with, um, with UA, I was, you know, I was not the problem. As a matter of fact, I was asked to, I met with, with the Transamerica guys in New York, and they said, hey, why don't you stay and run it? Um, and with Bill, Bernstein, Bill, that is, oh, yeah. Bernstein. And, and I was at the meeting and Bill was there and I said, look, um, that's not what I want to do. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I came here because Eric and Arthur brought me in and I'm going to go with them. Now, at that point, I don't think we had a deal anywhere and we started putting it all together and, um, then then uh, Warner's came along and we made a you know we made a deal with with Warner's and, and an outside banking arrangement with the um, Boston Bank. What was the first slate of films that had arrived? Um, this one, the I first dollar we ever made actually was a little romance. Ah. That's funny that you um, mentioned that. I just watched that recently. Um, it's a nice movie, isn't it's it? It's very charming. And it too is one of those movies that you, I, I remember loving it when I was, yeah, largely because I was 14 years old and I, I fell in love with Diane Lane. Uh, yeah. Well, who's, who's she's terrific in it. But it's still, still around. very charming. But the, yeah. the, but the boy disappeared from show business. Yeah, he did. He did. The French, French kid. They finally found him. He really disappeared. And I believe he became a dentist. And he didn't really want to be recognized or anything. He, he, he's probably Jewish because that's probably what his dad told him to do. If you're not going to be a lawyer or a doctor, be a dentist. <laughs> and not an actor. <laughs> and not an actor. He was 14. She was 13. They're in love and they want to keep it forever. But there's one small problem. The rest of the world... We'll be leaving at the end of the month. You better get used to the idea. I want to go to Venice. Like legendary loves, what they attempt is magical. You are running away, both of you, and you have made me a kidnapper. Laurence Olivier, Arthur Hill, Sally Kellerman, Diane Lane and Thelonious Bernard. Falling in love begins with a little romance. Coming home had a whole set of other issues and problems. Um, 
you know, I was also Jane Fonda's agent. And coming home, she had she was working on coming home at the time I was an agent. And she had a, a person working for her whose name I forget, who was also a writer, was a co-writer on the script at the beginning. And um, you know, and that could have actually produced a lawsuit, which I didn't want to be a party to. So I I kind of took the back seat. It was mostly done out of New York, you know. But I was really pleased that we made the movie. And then my favorite moment was when the marketing people came to L.A. to see the movie. And they saw the movie and they came into my office after it and accused me of treason. You know, how dare you make a movie about the war in Vietnam that basically makes us look bad. Right. Uh, I, you know, I called Eric up. I said, Eric, hey, you know what? I get they hated I said they hated the movie he said just tell them to come to come back to New York that's not their job is not to hate or or not like their job is to make sure they know how to sell it that was that was that I don't belong here you belong here I just wanted to get things straight what's going on with me so you know where I'm coming from and what happened. I know where you're coming from. And I know what happened. I just gotta figure out for myself what happened and how I'm gonna deal with it. Yeah, I can understand that. Shit! Don't! You Jody fuck! You get back! No, Bob. Get back, slope cunt! Now, you Jody motherfucker, you explain to me how it is you understand anything. I can't understand because I'm a brother and I've been in the same place you're at right now. That's why I feel so bad that I had to make it any harder for you than it already is. That's bullshit. But she's here because she loves you and there was never any question of that. Don't tell me that, goddammit! It's true what he's saying, Bob. Bullshit! Bullshit! If you give her a chance, she can help you. She wants to listen to you. And she wants to understand you. Say something else, fuck. Say something else, fuck. I'm not the enemy. Maybe the enemy is the fucking war. It's inconceivable to me, not only that, that uh, major studio is making movies you know obviously it's this is 40 years ago is able to make movies with content like coming home but then that you're able to separate the you know the the sales from the creative that you're and that yeah. Eric Pleskow is going to tell you that well you know was obviously that was the norm that I guess or do you think that UA and then Orion were specifically more uh independent in that sense well, we, we were independent and we made some great films long before, you know, Harvey came along, you know, um, and, you know, we, I think, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to talk about it as though it's just myself, but, you know, um, I think we were generally men of taste 
you know, well-read, well-informed, um, wanted to do good things and had a, you know, selection of people that we worked with that we, we really liked, you know, Jonathan Demi being one of them. You know, if you think about the films that Jonathan, I think Jonathan did five with us, you know, and um, Silence of the Lambs is a perfect example. You know, I mean, I actually gave him the script of, of Silence of the Lambs, the first draft of the script in the book. And um, everybody thought I was crazy that, you know, to go to Jonathan Demi with that film. Um, it turned out to have been right. Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No, I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube, a well-scrubbed hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the lamp? And oh, how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. see a lot, Doctor. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you, why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You fly back to school now, little starling. Fly, fly, fly. It's interesting because I, I also thought the same thing. This is a very odd choice and kind of a long shot to direct this sort of movie. <laughs> he hadn't really done that. What made you think of him for it? Well, um, you know, he'd done a bunch of other things along the way. And my feeling was that if he said he could do it, you know, then he could. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the material. And the only argument um, I, I wouldn't use the word argument, but the, the question I, you know, I had was the issue of Tony Hopkins to play that part. I, I often thought of it as a, you know, more of a kind of scary kind of American. And, um, you know, that was, that was essentially the argument was Hey, I want, I want to, I'm going to go to London and see him in this play and offer him the role to which I said, okay, but then uh, since you've struck out 
you know, you wanted Michelle Pfeiffer to play the other part, the, um, the Jody part. I said, in that case, you got to take Jody. And that was the agreement. You know, you take Jody, I take Tony. In 1967, Oliver Stone was a combat infantryman in Vietnam. During his tour, he received a bronze star for gallantry. Ten years later, in Hollywood, he was picking up an Oscar for the screenplay of Midnight Express. Now he has another story to tell, a movie that grew out of his own experience. Stone has come a long way from Vietnam, but he has not left it behind. The platoon thing is really kind of interesting because I did give Oliver his first directorial movie. It was called A Hand. If you look at that movie, you know, it's a genre piece, you know, and um, he then got somebody to put up some money to do platoon. Forget exactly who it was, but I can go back and look. But it, what's important actually is the head of our foreign department saw the 30 minutes that were put together and said, hey, we should take this movie for foreign. And we saw some of the footage and got the picture for the world. That's how it happened. Now, we saw the movie was screened at what was at one time the Selznick Studios. And I went and saw the movie. I was just blown away by it. I thought, frankly, as I look at it as a war movie, it's probably one of the best war movies, you know, best to, you know, middle or whatever is, is not really a good description. But if you have been in the army and I had been in the army and you know what a firefight looks like and you know what, the, and then you imagine what war is like. I mean, that thing was just, obviously told by a guy who had been there, you know. Um, and I was just blown away. I just thought that was the best thing I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. We got Buku movement. First battalion just got hit 15 clicks north of here. Shot a claymore strung up in the trees. Blew a whole fucking platoon to pieces. Bad shit. Yeah. I got two lieutenants and captain. Jesus. All right, Sergeant, who do you want on ambush? Wise, you take your squad out. Warren, you stay in, but I need Texan Junior from your squad. Rods of that. Okay, move out in two zero mics. I thought it was O'Neill's turn tonight. No, 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 no. Tubbs and Morehouse are short. Pew Shang's going on an R&R &R tomorrow, and you want to send them out on an ambush? Uh-uh, you got the fresh meat, buddy. They don't know shit, Barnes, and chances are we're gonna run into something. Think about it. That's just great, Bob. 
And what do you want me to do? Send one of my guys out to get zapped so some lame-ass just in from the world can get his beauty sleep? Nah. Hey, O'Neill, take a break. You don't have to be a prick every day of your life, you know. Elias, get your men ready. This guy's in three years. He thinks he's Jesus fucking Christ or something. O'Neill, your short-timers stay in, but you go out. I need veterans out there. No, and in my book, you know, I say, hey, about a, a third of them were just great films. And there's 325 of them, so there's quite a few. The 12-gauge autoloader. That's Italian. You can go pump or auto. The 45 long slide with laser siding. It's a brand new. We just got them in. That's a good gun. You just touch the trigger, the beam comes on, and you put the red dot where you want the bullet to go. You can't miss. Anything else? Phased plasma rifle in the 40 watt range. Hey, just what you see, pal. The Uzi 9 millimeter. You know your weapons, buddy. Any one of these is ideal for home defense. So, uh, which will it be? All. Let me close early today. There's a 15 day wait on the handguns, but the rifles you can take right now. You can't do that. Wrong. I also wanted to ask you though about about again you 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 took a chance on Terminator, uh, yeah. And again, well, if that's, you look at that story, that story just haunts me. This keeps coming back at me as though you know I'd done something wrong. You know, the fact is that nobody wanted to do Terminator, right? I mean, it's it's a movie that was turned down by everybody. If I remember correctly, we brought in a partner. And I could be wrong about that. But at any rate, the key issue really was who's going to play the part, right? Who's going to play the Terminator? Now, here's where we diverge. Now, my original suggestion, among others, because there were others, was O.J. Simpson. Now, if you remember O.J. at the time, he had a commercial going on. The commercial was of, a, I think, Hertz. You know, he was leaping, running, jumping, doing all the things. And, you know, he was, he was actually a, a well-known figure at the time. So that was one of the suggestions I gave the director. And he rightly said, I won't do the movie with O.J. Simpson. So, you know, that was, the, that was the end of that. You know, you can't make a director shoot a movie with an actor if he doesn't want the actor. You know, it's not not even in my mind. So I suggested, because I had worked with Arnold, and I sent the script to Arnold and his agent, Lou Pitt. Then I called Arnold to find out if he had read it. What I found out is that he had given his wife, Maria, the script, and she had read it, and she said, you should do it. Now, in my conversation with Arnold, Arnold said to me, you want me to play the heavy? Because that's how he viewed the part. I said, Arnold, Arnold, do me a favor, will you? Find the script, go to the front page of the script and take a look at the title. It's called The Terminator. This is the hero of the movie. So he didn't say anything. Eventually there was a meeting between the two of them, Jim and him. Jim, who by the way, is a brilliant filmmaker, you know, I mean, as, as a human being, I'm not so sure that I would put that in that category. And, you know, we wound up 
making the film. And I think in a way he was kind of pissed off at the fact that we didn't get enough out of it, out of that first one. Now I really, you know, we distributed his, at TriStar, we distributed his second one, Terminator 2. Right. And did a great job at marketing it. And, you know, for some, I think for good reason, you know, he, he should have been pissed off at, at the release, the fact that we didn't do as well. But that was a problem. Generally, that was a problem at United Art, at, um, at Orion all the way through, I think, the marketing. You know, we didn't spend enough, enough money or a lot of money in marketing and um, probably didn't take advantage of how well, you know, this, some of these pictures could do. But that wasn't my job to tell the marketing people how much money to spend. You know, that was really Eric's and Arthur's bailiwick. You know, I wasn't going to say, hey, throw another million dollars into the marketing of these movies. And, and in truth, actually, you know, one of the problems that the industry ran into in the certainly in the 90s, but they were spending too much money in marketing. There was so much money being thrown in marketing. And what happens in marketing is that you never know if anybody's watching the TV buy that you bought or not, whether you, you know, because you throw a hundred percent of the marketing and maybe 10% of the people see it. And that's certainly not enough. So the, the decision of whether to spend a lot of money in marketing or not, especially in those years, when you'd make your money back, you know, in, in subsequent years, in subsequent markets, not just in the theatrical market. I just want to end with, you know, to, I feel like in the last two years, really, suddenly the, the, what we know of as the movie business has been completely stood on its head, partly because of streaming, partly because yeah. of the pandemic. Uh, the Oscars appeared to be nothing like I remembered the Oscars ever being, not that that makes it a, a bad thing or a good thing, but where are you with all of this in a, in, in a nutshell, I guess? How do you feel about where, where things are, well, where they're going? It's, uh, there's a lot of things that you have no control of in life, one of which is a pandemic, right? There's nothing you can do about it other than protect yourself as best you can. As far as just decisions on what movies get made, I understand why these people are making the decisions they make. You mean studios? Yeah. When I say studios, I'm talking about streamers. Oh, okay. Really? I mean, because they're basically, you know, it's all streaming now. Some movies get made, but they're, you know, the big movie this week was a Japanese anime. I mean, that's as close to an animation movie as possible, except it's in a different language. Do I think it's going to come back? I think a lot of things are going to come back because I think people will feel the, you know, the lack of it. They'll feel the, the loss, if you will. Theatrical. Yeah. But having said that, it's an, you know, there's another generation and, you know, if there was any indication that we are living in a different century and that we have to get used to it, you know, I was in Davos, I forget what year it was, but I want to think it's 1992 or three. There were a bunch of guys that showed up that I never heard of. And they were, they were there basically talking about what they were doing. It was the description of that whole new digital age that was being introduced. And that's basically what's what's happened, right? So you're thinking a lot about what you can do 
technologically. Also, I think that we have another swing that's happening that is really kind of interesting because it's a uh, it's gone you know way beyond as a correction if you will and that's usually is what happens to historical processes and that is that in order to really get back into common sense practice you know you go beyond it you know and i think that's the that's the world we're fi- you know finding ourselves this whole woke thing is is crazy i mean to, in my opinion i mean so other people may feel otherwise but you know to me um we've been through lots of changes throughout the years you know i think i've learned a lot and i just turned 80 and i look at you know i look at the paper every day and every day there's somebody i know there's no longer around you know and it's you know talk about correction If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com, but we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here.